Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, uh, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, so that as we worship through studying the Word uh, this evening, we can um, be in right relationship uh, being taught by the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful we have you to come to, that we know that whatever problems we have in life that you know uh, and have known since eternity past exactly what those problems are, you provided us with your word, that your word would give us all that we need in order to face and handle any situation in life. That doesn't mean it will go away or disappear, that everything will be uh, wonderful and free of any difficulty. It means that you will give us the tools that we need. You have given us the tools that we need in order to maintain um, contentment, tranquility, uh, sharing your happiness, your joy, having the joy of the Lord, um, controlling our thinking so that we are uh, stable and we are not being um, knocked around by the various uh, different winds of change that are taking place in our generation. So, Father, we pray, too, for uh, the missionaries we support. We pray for Jim and Phyllis as they left today to go to Kenya. We pray for uh, those that we know, those that we work with in Ukraine, those that we know and work with in Israel, that in these times of war that you would uh, watch over them. And above all, we pray that they will uh, be faithful in providing uh, gospel information to those who need it and for those who uh, are not believers, we pray that they may, uh, that all of this uncertainty will cause them to turn and begin to think more about you. And so, Father, now as we focus on your word, we pray that uh, you, God the Holy Spirit will use that to challenge us, to teach us, to strengthen us uh, in our faith that we might be faithful in this uh, crooked and perverse generation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Philippians. That's that place that's uh, down there just after uh, Ephesians that we haven't looked at in about six weeks. I think that the last lesson, which was lesson 53 in Philippians, was taught on the 14th of September. Now, we've been meeting all along, but we've had all kinds of different things happening with uh, special speakers that came in, and then I had a virus problem, and then I was on vacation. So um, we were we had plenty of uh, good teaching uh, during that time. It's always good to bring in some of these people who are specialists in areas that can really give us some uh, additional insights uh, that, that are not necessarily... Um, the best the best areas of my own study. So tonight we're going to be looking at lesson uh, 54, 
And this is holding fast to God's word, holding fast to God's word. And we're going to look at Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be focusing on uh, Philippians 2, uh, 12 to 14. Now, this is a tremendous section in here, and there are a lot of parallels with Ephesians, which is what I focused on in the previous lesson. I'm not going to review uh, all of that, but I want to hit a few a few key points. So when we got into this last time, we were looking at this paragraph that begins with Philippians 2.12, and it, it depending on the text you're looking at, if you're looking at your uh, King James Bible, New King James Bible, it goes from 12 down to 18, but if you're looking at the Greek text, it goes down to 16. So that's why there's a little a little difference. Now, paragraphing was not part of the uh, inspiration of Scripture. Versification was not part of the uh, inspiration of Scripture. Punctuation was not part of the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, in uh, Greek as well as in Hebrew, you can figure out about 90 eight percent of the time what the punctuation should be based just on on syntax and grammar if you really know the language and a lot of people say well that's really hard on a second language but you could do really well if we if i gave you a paragraph in english and removed all the punctuation all the spaces between words you'd be surprised at how well you could punctuate it and divide it in terms of sentences, in terms of paragraphs and things like that, because you know the language. And you could take all the vowels out, like in Hebrew, where there are no vowels, and you'd, you'd get probably 99.5% of the words correct. I mean, you do that all the time. Have you noticed that? It's called figuring out and interpreting autocorrect. And you do that with your text messages all the time. You get this text messages. There are words there that don't make any sense. But you know what it's supposed to be from the context. Have you figured out what a great uh, interpreter you've become of language just because you, pr- you practice reading texts all the time and, and words that come across that are misspelled and everything else? You figure it out because you know the language. So that, that helps us. So this paragraph begins uh, with a conclusion. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there are some challenges in this particular verse that I brought out last time and reinterpreted it. Um, You have the first command in this section. Okay, not not in the broad body of the epistle, which began, which uh, uh, starts back in 127, but in this particular section, following the kenosis section, is, there are um, there are several important commands to pay attention to, and this first one is to work something out. It's the word on the lower left, kat ergazomai. Uh, erga, erga is a word for work, like like uh, it's related to our words for in, energy, in erge, okay, that e r g energy work that that whole word word group, and this means to produce something. It's in the middle voice, which tells you it's it has a reflexive action. English doesn't have a 
uh, a, a reflexive voice, like middle. We have active voice. He hit the ball. Um, you have a passive voice. The ball was hit by him. You have the middle voice. He hit himself in the head with the ball with the bat. Okay, that's what reflexive is. He sh- shaves himself. That's reflexive. So when it's in the middle voice, that means you're doing something in relationship to uh, to the uh, one who performs the action of the verb is doing something to himself. So it means to uh, produce something. And uh, I translated that to give it a better a better sense because when people read this, they read work out your salvation. And you've heard me talk about this before that we've got a problem in modern evangelicalism since the Reformation. And that is that uh, those who translated uh, the King James Version and those who translated subsequent versions from the Revised Standard Version to the um, you know, ESV, which is an update of the Revised Standard Version, to the New American Standard that that tra- that that we got into this thing back in the 50s when the RSV uh did not translate alma the word for virgin in Isaiah 7:14 as virgin but translated it as a young maiden and evangelicals just absolutely stroked out over that because it, it wasn't right according to context and a no- number of other things and so you get um, uh, you get these traditional translations, and whether they're right or wrong, if they're changed a little bit, then what happens is people get upset, and then what happens is that people don't. If the, a whole bunch of uh, evangelicals get upset with some verse that's translated a way that they uh, don't think is correct, then what happens is that. Um, they don't buy the Bible. They don't buy the translation. And now you don't make any money. See, it's it, Bible translation, it never talked about, but it's a money-making operation. Okay, so you, you, there are things that you have to sort of force to translate a certain way because that's how it's understood traditionally. And I remember Alan Ross spoke here at the at what I call the COVID pastors conference back in uh, 2020, because that's when right in the middle of that conference was when everything started to shut down and everybody barely got out of town, got back home. But Alan Ross used to say, because he was one of the upper level editors for the NIV, he used to say, I always want to put an asterisk at, at, at certain words and say, this is the word of God by a vote of five to four. And one of the words that we have trouble with is the word sozo. That's the Greek word for salvation. And you have various forms. You have sozo is the verb meaning to save, but it also means to heal. It also means to deliver from some temporal problem or disaster. Uh, It has a range of meanings. But there's this knee-jerk response that every time you see the verb sozo in the Greek text, you translate it saved, and then people think all these verses are talking about getting justified and avoiding the lake of fire when they die. 
But a lot of those passages aren't talking about justification, salvation. They're talking about something else, and we have uh, that problem right here in this verse. So people think, work out your salvation. They think that means doing something to maintain their saved status. And it's not talking about justification, salvation at all. It's talking about their deliverance. I prefer to translate it deliverance. You start changing these words up, and people get a different slant on these verses, which is, I think, good for them. So here you have a workout, which means to produce something in relation to oneself because it's a middle voice. Then you have the noun for salvation, soteria, which can be translated salvation, healing, or deliverance. And in this passage, I've translated it that way. In Philippians 2.12, then, we would read it, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, you are responsible to produce your own deliverance with fear and trembling. So whenever you see the word saved, whenever you see the word deliverance, you always have to ask the question, what are you being delivered from? What is the text talking about? What are you being saved from? And that's very, very important. And so what we see here is that they are contextually, um, the issue is that they need to be steadfast and the issue is unity. Those two things are, are major themes all through this, this epistle. So what they are being delivered from is, uh, is the lack of unity, the bickering, the competitiveness, the self-seeking that was uh, dominant in the, it, with the Philippian congregation. But let's go back to talking about this word salvation. There's three stages of salvation. Earl Rodmacher made it sort of well-known. He used to call it the three tenses of salvation. Others have called it the three phases of salvation, that there are three distinct ways in which the word for salvation is used in Scripture. The first one, phase one, is justification. This takes place in less than a heartbeat. This happens when you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that by believing in him, you will have everlasting life. That's the simple, basic good news of eternal life. So this is phase one, takes place the instant you hear the gospel and go, I think that's true. I believe that. Just a simple mental act. Some people say you have to believe with your heart. Heart's down here. Head, your brain's here. Belief is a function of thought. It's a function of agreeing that something is true, and that's what it means to believe. Now, after that, we have to decide if we're going to grow or not. So we, we're, we're, the instant we trust Christ as Savior, we become a newborn baby, a spiritual baby. We have a new life. We've become born again. So there's something new that has transpired, and we are now uh, sharing the life of God. And so now we have to decide, are we going to nourish it? This is First Peter 2.2, 2, where we are commanded to uh, desire the unadulterated milk of the word. It doesn't say the milk of human kindness. It doesn't say good emotions. 
It doesn't say wonderful feelings. It says that we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word. It is the word that produces growth. Growth. It goes on to say that you may grow by it. See, it is desiring the unadulterated milk of the word that is our, should be our priority so that we can grow spiritually. And as we take in the word and we study the word and we apply the word, then we are going to grow spiritually. So this is the second phase. And the third phase is our called glorification. This is when we are absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, where we are separated finally from our sin nature. So in justification, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. You were saved. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you were saved, past tense. You're delivered from the penalty of sin, delivered from eternal condemnation. Then in the spiritual life and spiritual growth, you are delivered from the power of sin. We are being saved. We are working out our deliverance. You know, we're delivered from the power of sin. As we grow, we are, uh, Romans 6 talks about uh, separating from the power of the sin nature, putting to death the deeds of the flesh or the sin nature. And then there's a, there's a future tense. You will be saved. In Romans 5, 9, it says, you have been justified. That's past tense. When you trusted Christ, you were justified. And so that you will be saved in the future. Now, that those tenses are very important. It's interesting because in the book of Romans, saved is never a synonym for justification. Never. It is always used in that future sense of the completion of the whole salvation process in phase three. So what we're looking at in this verse, in verse 12, and working out our salvation is really that we are to produce in our spiritual life uh, growth so that we're delivered from all of these uh problems that the Philippians were having, the bickering and the self-centeredness and the arrogance and and the rest of it. So just in terms of review, I uh, put together this chart. I didn't get to this the last time. This is just a general uh, outline of the main body of the epistle. You have the introduction from 1, 1, actually you have the salutation 1, 1, and 2, and then 1, 3 down to 1, 26 is the introduction to the epistle. And, um, and, and then you get to 127. This is the introduction to this main body that goes from, to, um, uh, from actually should go from 127 to 41. The intro is basically the command to live your life worthy of the gospel. And last time I spent a lot of time comparing Ephesians and Philippians because both of them are prison epistles. Paul was in prison in Rome. He had first been arrested in Jerusalem. He went to Caesarea by the sea where he is kept there. And the procurator and the governor, just they just didn't do anything with his case. Finally, he appealed to Caesar, went to Rome, shipwreck on the way. And... Um, uh, 
so he's there. So Philippians and, and Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians are written very close to one another, and they share a lot of the same uh, the same themes. So, and the main idea is that we're to live our life a certain way because we're new creatures in Christ. We're we're now in Christ. We're in, we have put on the new man. The main section uh, goes from chapter two, verse one, to um, chapter four, verse one, and this emphasizes a life that is characterized by unity and steadfastness. We'll spend some time just looking at verse. Uh, verse 27, and verse 27 says, only let your conduct be worthy. See, that's the emphasis there. We're to walk worthy. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. See, standing fast is one key theme, and unity, stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together. So we'll see that. So uh, chapter 2 focuses on unity. Chapter 3 down to 4.1 focuses on that steadfastness. And then we'll have a concluding challenge in 4.2 through 9 uh, to, to have steadfast, uh, steadfast thinking and living. Christian life always begins between your ears, not with just going out and following a list of rules. That's legalism. It starts with changing the way we think. We're not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So in this introductory paragraph I just read to you, the, with the main command that governs uh, 127 to 49 is live your life worthy of the gospel. And that is going to be um, that's going to be uh, – and the emphasis is going to be on standing fast and unity. The word that is used here in Philippians 1.27 isn't the word that's used in other passages that talk about the spiritual walk. It is an idiom for that that basically meant to live as a good citizen. But it came to be emphasizing that idea of how you lived your life. And worthy is the idea of a, of a manner that is suitable or worthy of what God has done for us. We're not that we're trying to earn it, but because we're grateful that God has saved us, that we want to live up to all that he has done uh, freely and graciously for us. Then I'm going to skip the middle part of this for right now, and that the purpose is that you stand fast in one spirit. And this is the Greek word stako, which has to do, it's a second meaning in the Greek lexicon, to be firmly convinced or committed in conviction or belief, to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. So that's what it means to stand fast, to say, yes, this is true, and nothing can shake my faith in the truth of what the Scripture says. I will always stand on the Bible, and it doesn't matter what comes, I will stick with the Scripture. So what does the Bible teach us about standing fast? Well, first of all, we have a choice. We can stand fast in the truth, or we can stand in a lie. And that is what is implied in the statement Jesus makes to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. 
So we have a choice. That's the first divine institution, responsible choice. And in John 8, 44, Jesus said to the, to, I just wish I was there, a fly on the wall to watch their expressions because these are the uh, self-righteous, holier-than-thou Pharisees who think that everything there's do, they're doing is perfectly correct and pleases God. And Jesus says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand, there's our word, he does not stand in the truth. So you can either stand in the truth or you're going to stand in a lie. Those are the only two options. And Satan is the father of lies. Um, He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. See, he was trying to deny the creator-creature distinction, and that's what most people do because of their sin nature. They want to speak from their own resources. They want to have their own opinions. They they don't want anybody to judge them about anything. They want to have their own opinions because they want to be their own little god, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. So you have the choice. You're either going to stand in the truth are you going to stand in the lie? You can't, you're not going to stand with one foot in one place, one foot in the other. People try to do that, but it doesn't work. So when we look at the scripture, we're told that we are to stand fast in one spirit. Now, what does that mean? Now, I could take a long time on this, but I'm not. When you see the word spirit, remember in the original Greek, there's no uppercase letters. So there's nothing to give you a hint as to whether this is the Holy Spirit or the human spirit or something else. And so when we look at uh, a Greek dictionary, uh, you can get lost in all of the various meanings of this word pneuma. When you get pneumonia, that word comes from this Greek word, and it has to do with difficulties breathing in your lungs because one of the basic meanings of pneuma is just breath. Wind, air. Uh, that's what. That's a ba- one of the basic meanings of of pneuma. But there's a lot of other meanings. It also means because of breath. It means that which animates or gives life. So it talks about uh, that which animates uh, all ki- kinds of life, human life as well as animal life. It's also used to refer to the immaterial part of man. And that is when you have it as a lowercase s. And sometimes that is contrasted with the flesh, which is the sin nature. Other times it is the uppercase s, which is the Holy Spirit, which is also contrasted. We either walk by the Holy Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. And that's in Galatians 5. Uh, 5, 16, 17, and 18. There's this war between uh, the Holy Spirit and our sin nature that takes place inside of us. So is, the, is it a Holy Spirit here? Stand fast in the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about standing fast in air or in breath or any of those other meanings. It also has the idea of... Um, uh, sometimes it's very close to the idea of soul. So I think it is the human spirit which is regenerated when we are saved, and it 
works very, very closely with the soul so that sometimes you can talk about both of them with either word because they're so close. But the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to divide asunder the what? The soul and the spirit. That verse is profound because it's telling you that the Bible makes a distinction between soul and spirit. Now, in many passages, either word can be used to refer to both of them because they're so close. But the Bible tells us there is a distinction in those. So that's one possibility. But another another use for the word spirit is it refers to a state of mind or a disposition, or a mental attitude. So somebody can have a depressed spirit. That's talking about a depressed state of mind, uh, a sad spirit, it's a, or a bitter spirit. You're just talking about different mental attitudes or dispositions. And that's what this is talking about, stand fast in one mental attitude. What does it say in the next clause? Striving together with one mind. So these are parallel. To make sure you understand what he means by spirit, he then says, striving together with one mind. So often you will find the word spirit to refer to a mental attitude. In fact, there's passages like in 1 Corinthians 2 where the word pneuma is used with at least three, maybe four different meanings in about in six, six verses. Now, that just drives an interpreter crazy because you have to look at each one as it's used in the context, and so there are lots of debates over some of these. But we're to stand fast in one attitude, and that's what he talks about when he gets into chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which we've already already studied in detail. So we're to stand fast with the same mental attitude, the same mindset, the same focus. A third thing that we see from Scripture is we stand fast in the Lord. We stand fast in the Lord, or we could understand that preposition as by means of the Lord. We're standing fast by means of the Lord or in the Lord, and that would refer to our standing fast in terms of our fellowship with the Lord. And that's Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown... So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. That, he's exhorting them to stand fast in the Lord. It's, it's another way of talking about our uh, intimate fellowship, our walk by means of the Spirit. And if we sin, we're not standing fast. So now we're out of fellowship. We're not walking by the Spirit, and we have to confess sin and recover. First Thessalonians 3.8, Paul writes, For now we live... In other words, we experience the fullness of our new life in Christ if we stand fast in the Lord. doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation if you don't stand fast, but you're going to lose the joy of the Lord. You're going to lose the, the benefits of your new position in Christ because you're living on the basis of your sin nature and not on the basis of your walk by the Holy Spirit. A fourth way in which this is used is to stand fast in the faith. Now, often when we see this phrase, the faith, it's not talking about the act of faith. 
Okay, we talk about somebody, he has faith. That means that they are a person who is trusting in Christ. But uh, when we talk about somebody's faith, it's not talking about their actions of faith, but what they believe. So we often talk about, well, somebody is from a, a, a Baptist faith or they're from the Anglican faith or they're from the Roman Catholic faith. It's talking about the body of doctrine or what is believed. So it can either, the noun can refer to either the act of faith or the, the content of that faith. So when we stand fast in the faith, we're standing fast in the truth of Scripture. That is what enables us to stand fast. It's supposed to be in the truth. And so as Paul closes out 1 Corinthians, he says, watch. Be, pay attention to what's going on. Don't just go through life just drifting along the way everything goes, but pay attention because you may be living in a time like we're living in when who knows what is going to happen tomorrow. So watch, stand fast in the faith. Stand fast in the body of truth that is taught in the Scripture. Be brave and be strong even when you face persecution, opposition, and hate from those who reject Christianity. And then I misnumbered this next one. This should be five. We stand fast because of God's ability to make us stand. This is Romans 14, 4b, the second half of the verse, where Paul says, Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You see, it, God is able. We can't do it of our own strength. It's God's ability, and we get that as we walk by the Holy Spirit. So this should be correctly numbered number five. We stand fast because of God's ability to make us stand. And then this is the sixth point. Uh, we stand fast in what the Word of God teaches. That relates to uh, point four. Uh, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Now, there are a lot of churches who have a lot of traditions that aren't biblical. I pastored my first church, learned a lot of lessons of what not to do, uh, but they had a lot of traditions that weren't biblical because they were sort of a, it was a union church, and that's sort of the original, they used to be called union churches because if you went to uh, went to Texas, and you started a small town, and there weren't enough Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians to make up their own denomination, have their own church. Then they all got together and just had one church. And they probably couldn't afford to pay a preacher, so they would have uh, an itinerant Baptist come through for a while or an itinerant Methodist come for, for a while. And so if you were a Baptist and you believed in immersion and you're in a union church, then when if you had uh, kids that got saved, you wanted them to be baptized later when they were knowledgeable of the gospel. But if they had a, a, a Methodist itinerant pastor there, he would be required to go out and find a Baptist preacher somewhere to come and baptize your kids and, and vice versa. And that was the kind of church that I, I, I pastored in the first two years I was in, in the ministry. And they had all kinds of traditions. And sometimes you're really tempted to say tradition is just bad. But the Bible, Bible says there's good traditions and there are bad traditions. 
there's there's bad traditions or ones that aren't consistent with the Bible or aren't derived from the Bible, but good traditions are those that are the traditions of Scripture. For example, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That is our tradition. It is a biblical tradition, so we are to hold fast to that. We believe that God's plan and program has a distinction between Israel and the church. That is can be biblically demonstrated, so that is a good tradition. Uh, we sometimes have uh, uh, special times around Christmas that, that are sort of our tradition, but that's not biblical. That's just the way we've tended to do things, but it's neither right nor wrong. So a good tradition, what Paul is talking about here, is the biblical truth that you were taught and that you are are to stand fast in that. Whether by word, that would be the, the speaking when they came, when they came and taught them, or by epistle, which is what was written in the word. So the the first phrase, whether by word, has to do with the oral teaching of the word when they were present, and uh, epistle refers to the written word in the epistles that were sent to them. So that's what we're to stand fast in. We're to stand fast in God's word. That's the focal point, and that that's what's introduced here at the beginning of um, one in in one twenty seven. And then when we get down into our passage in 12 through 18, uh, we run across the phrase, um, hold in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. That's the same verb, standing fast, holding fast, not letting go of the word of life. That is the message of Scripture. So we go back to Philippians 127, and what we see here is this, remember, this is like your topical sentence for the body of the epistle. And he says, you're, first of all, you live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ with a result. And the result should be that whether I come and see you or am absent, that you stand fast. That's the first result. Now, why did I point that out? Because when we start this section in Philippians 2.12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. See, that's parallel to whether I come and see you or I'm absent. So he's picking up this idea that I don't need to be there, but I, you, you need to obey whether I'm there or not. So this verse is going back to that topical sentence in 127, that they are to be obedient, whether in Paul's presence or not, and that they are, we are all responsible to produce our own deliverance from, uh, from with fear and trembling. So this is, that's, that is the first command there, that we're responsible to produce. We're commanded to produce. That is the first command in this section. So we ask the question, uh, what is the way of life of our new identity, the new standards for our new citizenship? Paul calls it the new man in Ephesians 4. I talked about that the last time. And in this passage, he uses a different idiom. 
because he's talking to those in Philippi who were citizens of Rome. Philippi was a Roman colony, and if you lived in Philippi, you were born there, you were a citizen of Rome. And uh, the, the colony was originally established by uh, retired military veterans. And so that was uh, an important aspect, understanding their citizenship. So Paul is going to use an idiom that really resonates uh, with those people. And I compared this last time with Ephesians 4, where in 4.2, at the beginning, that they are to walk with humility and patience. So that's emphasized here. Patience is a is, is comparable to steadfastness. It's endurance and humility, unity, uh, not arrogant. Uh, they're to put up with one another in love in Ephesians 4.2. And so when we looked at uh, uh, Philippians 2, uh, it talks about the fact that that they are to love one another and that they are to... Um, uh, encourage one another and be uh, active in, in actively humble, not arrogant. Uh, there to uh, in Ephesians, there to work hard to maintain the unity of the spirit, not to get it. We got it the instant we're saved, but we have to maintain it because the fourth point: there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Very similar to what is being said. Uh, in Philippians. And so Paul is talking about humility, not a me first. We live in such a narcissistic culture. I remember reading a book by Christopher Lash, Culture of Narcissism, back in the mid-80s. And he only thought he saw narcissism 40 years ago. It's on steroids now. And it's just amazing uh, where we've gone. And so when people are saved out of this narcissistic culture, the only way they're going to be transformed is by an immersion in the Word of God. And that's going to be genuine culture shock because so much of their thinking is shaped by the fact that they think life revolves around them. So we are to have biblical love for one another, and that cannot coexist with anger or with arrogance. So this is where you see the the overlap between the two. Now, when we get to the end of this opening uh, 2, 1 through 4 of Philippians, the command is to let this mind be in you. See, it's about thinking. It's not about how you feel. It's about how we think. Love isn't a feeling. Love is a mental attitude because love can be commanded. Emotions can't be commanded. And so, and the same thing with forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a mental attitude based on grace. So all of that is important. So we're responsible to work out or to produce our own deliverance with fear and trembling. That's the first command. The second command comes in verse 14. Verse 14, do all things without complaining or disputing. Uh, do all things without grumbling and griping. This is a present active imperative. So this is a second command. The first command is to uh, produce our deliverance. And ultimately, it's God who's working in us. That was verse 13. Verse 14 is that we're to do all things 
not the things that you feel like doing right. I, I don't feel like I can't complain about this. I mean, we all love to complain, but we're not to do to anything by com- characterized by complaining and arguing about it. And so these are the ideas here. The first word complaining is the idea of expressing discontent. Ultimately, when we express discontent, we're saying, God, I don't like your plan, and I'm going to gripe about it. Well, that's blasphemous. Second word for disputing is dialogismos, from which we get our word dialogue. But it means to argue, to bicker, to gripe about things. That's the beginning of the sentence. Notice how this sentence is punctuated in English with a comma. That's because they understand that this is not the whole sentence. That's just the command, the start, starting point. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? Well, that's verse 15. Verse 15 starts with the word that, which usually indicates a purpose or a result. And so we're to not complain or gripe for the purpose that we may become. That word indicates growth. It's the Greek word to indicate to become something that we're not. When you're a little bitty baby and things aren't feeling right or you're hungry, what do you do? You scream and you cry, you make everybody miserable, and you're, you're basically grumbling and, and complaining. You're doing what verse, verse 14 is saying. You're complaining and arguing with everybody because you want your food or you want to have your diapers changed or whatever it is. And you have to grow up, which means you have to become something that you're not initially. And we are to become blameless and harmless. The word blameless is the word down in the lower left which means amemptas, um, which is the A at the beginning is a negative, but it means that you're, 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 you're not blameworthy. You're not doing the wrong things. And the word harmless is the word over here in the right panel that is karaios, uh, and it has to do with something that's not mixed, where you might mix different uh, metals together in an alloy, or you might mix wine with water. This is the idea of, of uh, not being mixed with evil. And so it means you're free of guilt. You're not blameworthy. So the, the goal is that we may become blameless and harmless. Then it says children of God. Now there's a comma there, and that's really important in English because the word order here really should, should be uh, the, the blameless with the, the, being blameless and harmless modifies children of God. The instant you trust Christ, you're adopted into God's family. You're born again. You are a child of God. Remember Jesus in that same confrontation I quoted earlier from John 8 said, you are of your father, the devil. You have a lot of people who go around and say, well, God is everybody's father. No, he's not. That's a lie that comes straight out of the pit of hell. That's what Satan wants everybody to think is that God is everybody's father. But he's not. Uh, if you're an unbeliever, you're not adopted into God's family yet, and you are, you are a child of the devil. Your father is the devil. Once you trust in Christ and you're born again, then you're adopted into God's family. And even if you still live like you're the child of the devil, 
which happens to a lot of believers before they learn anything. Even though you still act like a child of the devil, you are a, the child of God. So every person who trusts in Christ as Savior uh, is a child of God. So the initial result is that we are to grow. That That is the purpose. We're born again. Now we have to grow. A lot of people say, well, I'm just going to be happy. I don't have to learn all this stuff. I don't have to be involved with church. I don't have to uh, read the Bible. I'm just happy I'm going to go to heaven. Yeah, but you're going to be the people that are living down in the tent city somewhere uh, on the edge of heaven uh, because you didn't grow. There's no capacity. You don't understand where you are, but you have eternal life, but you're not going to be like people who grew and matured. Um, so we're children of God. We're supposed to grow, and we are to be with blameless, harmless, and without fault. Those are the three synonyms uh, that are used. And we are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Well, this word crooked is a word that uh, is scolios in the Greek. We get our word scoliosis, which you know people have a curvature of the spine, that's scoliosis, and um, and that has to do with this um, a crooked generation. And in this word is used by Peter in Acts 2.40. Acts 2.40 is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, when the, the day the church was born. And he's in the temple, and he is preaching to a group of some saved Jews, because they were Old Testament saints, and some who have not been saved yet. And he uh, Luke writes, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them or challenged them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. From there I would translate that, b- delivered from what? The perverse generation of those who crucified uh, Jesus on the cross. So the, a crooked generation is a generation that is not obedient to the gospel that has rejected the gospel. And a perverse generation, that's the word on the right, uh, diastrepho, which uh, means uh, something that is perverted, something that is uh, corrupted, and they are crooked because they've rejected the truth. They are following the father of lies. And so there's a the crooked and perverse generation, and and we are to shine in the midst of this horrific generation that we live in as bright lights that is what we are to do we are uh we are the child the children of the light of the world and so we too are to shine forth as lights and so the only way we can do that is to internalize the word of god uh, that is, it. the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so the only way we can shine forth is by internalizing uh, the Word of God. So we are to become blameless. There's going to be a difference between the way a believer lives and the way the unbeliever lives. Now, maybe 50 or 100 years ago, when we had a still had a large residual influence from the Bible in our American culture, uh, 
there were a lot of people who lived better than a lot of Christians did. If they, they, maybe they weren't saved, but they still lived better than a lot of Christians might have lived. But we had a generally moral culture that believed in moral absolutes. And so it was uh, not always easy to tell if somebody was really a believer or whether they were just somebody who had been reared with the moral precepts of Christianity. But I remember back in the 70s or 80s that uh, that if you went to California, it was real easy to tell the difference because the, the, you didn't have this cultural baggage of the Bible Belt, which we have. Uh, and so a lot of people just grew up with that tradition of going to church, but not so in California. So you ha- if people were going to church on Sunday, they were more than likely people who really wanted to know the word and they were, they were saved. Uh, either that or they had huge guilt complex, complexes. But, um, uh, they, they just did not, um, they, they didn't have this cultural norm of going to church but you still had that in in the south but in the bible belt but that's not so so much true anymore so we live in a kind of generation that has drifted away from the word and its and its impact so we're to shine forth like bright lights like luminaries uh illuminating uh the world the cosmic system the trouble with that is that that people often resent that and they often uh, reject that. We are to engage in the process of Romans 12:2, which I've translated this way. Don't be pressed into the mold of acting and thinking like unbelievers. See, that's the crooked and perverse generation. Uh, they are still in Adam. They are still spiritually dead. But we are to be completely changed and transformed by the renovation of our thinking. We have to learn to think biblically. God revealed his words to us, not so we'd have a lot of nice stories to tell kids. God gave us his word so it would change how we think about everything. Because until we're saved, we're thinking like rebellious uh, children think, um, that we reject God. So... We're to be completely transformed by the renovation of our thinking. It doesn't say by the renovation of our emotions, by the renovation of our traditions. It's a renovation of our thinking. It starts with thinking and then works its way out. There are a lot of people who have the the outward appearance of being Christians, but their thinking has never changed. They still think like, like unbelievers. They have a worldview that is not biblical. So we have to be transformed from the inside out that our lives will be evidence that will demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and complete. It's sufficient. So we're living testimony. We shine as bright lights. So Philippians 2, 14 through 16 says this. This is the full sentence. Do all things without complaining and disputing. For the result that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the cosmic system, the world system. And then you have a participial phrase that should be translated by holding fast the word of of life. See, how do we 
do all things without complaining and disputing. That's your main command. And when you get down to this participle here, it's describing how you're able to do that by holding fast, by being steadfast to the word of life with the ultimate result that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Now, that refers to the judgment seat of Christ, which comes after the rapture of the church. So we don't know exactly when that will be, but people who die today, they're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. And then when the rapture occurs and all believers in the church age are transformed, then there'll be the judgment seat of Christ. And we've already talked about that in detail, and I have notes to go into that tonight, but it's already 8.30. I want to go into, I do not want to go into that and start that tonight. Um, so we're to hold fast the word of life with the ultimate joy, uh, ultimate result, Paul says, that he can rejoice in the day of Christ, that at the judgment seat of Christ, when these Philippian believers are rewarded for their faithfulness and for their humility, then Paul says, then I can rejoice that I didn't minister to you in vain or labored in vain or run my race or live my life in vain. So that takes us to this doctrine of the day of Christ, and we'll wait until next time to start that so that we can have a good, clear understanding of this. And I've added a few things to it from the last time we taught it, which was uh, probably about a year and a half ago. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be encouraged by your word And to be reminded that we are to grow, that that is what's expected of us, to grow and mature so that our thinking is transformed and the way we live and act and talk and think, everything is transformed and changed uh, with the result that we're able to shine forth as lights in the midst of a very dark and increasingly uh, dark world. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us, that we are to be strengthened in the faith, strengthened in our understanding of your word, uh, being challenged to grow uh, by uh, taking in your word because uh, you prayed to the Father to sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in the inner man. In Christ's name, amen.